Well, how should, how should you and I live out the gospel in this world? Within the larger unbelieving <coughs> society, how, how should we relate to the wider culture? More specifically, to people in our culture, not just the idea of a culture, we're not talking theory, but, but the actual people that we come across every day and we're close to. How, how do we relate to, to the wider culture? When, when, as particularly when Christians and Christianity becomes more and more marginalized. What kind of engagement should we have in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the values and the basic realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Those are some questions that help us kind of uh, set up the overarching theme of First Peter that we're going to be in for the next several weeks. They're, they give us shape to that larger theme. And I know, I know when you hear those questions, you instinctively and rightly, you think of your own context and where we live now in this day and time. But I want you to realize that the context into which Peter uh, was writing this letter is vastly different from our own. Um, and there are similarities, but there are many differences. I, I just, just to put some flesh and, 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 and bones on this in the context, just think of a, of a young mother in that first century, a young Christian mother in the first century Greco-Roman world when, this, when, when Peter is writing this letter to these believers in these churches. And so think about what she might be facing. Her husband is is still an idol worshiper. She's embraced Jesus Christ. Your husband, though, is still worshiping idols. You can imagine the strain that might put on your marriage and the difficulties that that would bring. And might, uh, he, he might be threatening uh, to, to leave you, to abandon you. And, and, and again, in, in that in time, that would be total devastation for, for you as a young mom. Your parents and your in-laws, they can't believe that you've They've, that you've believed in Jesus Christ and, they, and, they, and they, they think you're crazy and they're shunning you. Your neighbors, they laugh at you and they mock you and, and, and you go down the street. When you go down the street to meet with other believers that live several houses down, they, 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 on Sunday of all days, the first day of the week, why are you doing this on Sundays? And, and there they are. They're just ridiculing you shamelessly. You're shunned by certain vendors in the marketplace. And they, when you walk up to the stand, instantly the prices go up. You, your husband maybe gets interrogated by local authorities and he's pressured to get you to, 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 get, to, to get his wife under control. And he's threatened that he's going to, 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 there will be action taken against your family. And how do you raise your children? You've got young children and you want to raise them to know and love Jesus Christ. How do you do that in a home like that and in a culture like that? And your parenting priorities are radically different from your community, let alone your own husband. How, how, do, you, how do you live like that? How do you face that? Maybe you have an older brother and, and, and he also has trusted Christ. And, and, but, but prior to him coming to Christ, he, he's, he had to be enslaved because of debts that he owed. And now... His master just has it in for him now that he's a believer and is treating him uh, very unfairly and abusing him and life's miserable for him. How do you, how do you speak to your brother? And you, and you have standards of beauty in your community and your culture that are now vastly different from yours as a new person, new creature in Jesus Christ. And how do you, how do you walk through that? So 
that just that just gives you some sense that you could you could do that same thing with with a, a teenager you're with a with a a, a a man and anything but in, in many ways the context of first peter is so different from uh, from our our culture that that some scholars say that it 's hardly even applicable to the church in the West today. I disagree with that wholeheartedly, but that but you do find that view that said when viewed from a global perspective and a and a larger perspective, modern North American Christianity is really just a small minority of who makes up the the whole church. Millions of Christians around the world right now are living under the constant threat of persecution, even violent persecution. And so what you find, wherever Christians are a small, struggling, suffering minority, then the message of First Peter has this immediate relevance. This is the go-to book for Christians living in hard places. I'm not just making that up, but that's well documented. This is a book that in, in, when, 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 the, when, when Christians are under dark, deep oppression, is, if they're able to, to give voice, this is one of the places in Scripture where they most often turn to for hope and for help. It's, it's for Christians who are in conflict with the surrounding culture. So what about us? <laughs> what about us? That's not exactly where we're at. But let me listen, listen. The need is not for you and me to be able to identify with the exact circumstances that, the, that, that Peter's readers were going through. Its message is not only applicable, applicable to those facing opposition just like they were. Um, that said... I must say, Christianity is increasingly becoming more and more marginalized as, as our culture uh, widely accepts, values, and even legalizes that which is completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the circumstances of suffering really aren't Peter's main focus. We, we, get, we get a picture because we know what's going on with these believers, but that's, that's not his thrust through here. That's not where he starts his letter. That's not how he finishes his letter. That's not his focus throughout. What Peter's burden is, is for, for his readers to see the sweeping scope of new life in Jesus Christ. That's what, he's, that's what he's mostly concerned about. To see the radical implications of being born again by the mercy of God to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And after, after then, after seeing the true grace of God that Peter's going to be laboring for these, these Christians, suffering Christians to see and to grasp, after seeing the true grace of God, his final exhortation to them will be then, now stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God until you're finally home, until you cross that bridge to glory and to receive the inheritance that God has given you. And so the point is not, do we suffer like they suffer, and therefore, does this apply to me? No. Whatever your problems, we can know this living hope that never dies. And that's what I want you to see. So the series title that we're working with is that hope is alive. Hope is alive. And that has double meaning, as you will see as we walk through First Peter together. Certainly, our hope is a living hope, and we read that this morning even while we live in a world that's full of troubles and full of difficulties and suffering and persecution, a world that's not our home, we can have this enduring hope because Christ is, is risen from the dead. And so it's a living hope. But also, our hope must live. And that's going to be another thrust throughout First Peter is our lives must be transformed to reflect the, the hope and, and, and the new, new life we have because of God's mercy 
And so it's going to affect how we live, and, and it has very many practical implications. So today, we're simply going to see how Peter starts this letter, and the way he starts is by praising God. See it in verse 3. Whatever, whatever problems we're facing, we can praise God today. Now, I know you and I have probably both been in situations where um, you have that sort of annoying, bubbly Christian who walks into a room where everybody's weeping because of some tragedy that struck, and their response is, PTL, praise the Lord, just don't cry, just praise the Lord, consider it joy when you counter trials of various kinds, and, and they, they turn scripture, and, it, and it's like a knife, though, to those who are weeping and lamenting. And it's not appropriate, but Peter's praise the Lord. It's not trite, it's not unsympathetic, he's not being glib here. He's well aware of what these Christians are dealing with, the realities and the sufferings that they're going through. He's not blind to that. Christian slaves being treated unfairly by their masters, Christian wives being mistreated by their unbelieving husbands, making making life just miserable for them. These are some of the realities that he's going to address here. Many of these believers lost friends for their faith in Jesus Christ, and and now they're being slandered by their former friends. Some were being physically threatened and and even even facing the possibility of martyrdom. So those are realities, but Peter knows all these difficulties. He knows these pressures, but he says to them right out of the gate, Blessed be the God who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So my aim this morning is simply this, that as we start out of the gate, we will bless the Lord together. We will bless the Lord. Our One translation of verse 3, I think is, this is good. You could say it this instead of blessed be the God. What a God we have. What a God we have. And that's, that's how I've been praying for us, praying for my own heart and praying for you this week, is that as we, as we begin this book, as, as we walk through this passage that will be so transformed by the Word of God and, 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 and helped by the Spirit of God to say, when it's done, what a God we have. And if, and if we fail to do that today, either I fail to communicate God's Word clearly, you fail to listen to what God is saying, but this is, this is the message that needs to be communicated, needs to be, that we need to lay hold of. Not to minimize whatever pain or difficulties or sorrows you may be experiencing today. That's not the point but to put them in perspective against the backdrop of God's, of God's incredible greatness and His unfathomable grace. That's what we want to do today. So Peter doesn't start his letter off kind of like a clinical classroom lecturer. No, he is. He's theological, but he's relational, and he's, a, he's emotive in, 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 in his worship of the Lord right here at the beginning. And so if he starts this way, again, I think we should. And he's going, he's not going to let up. We're going to see throughout Peter that for the, throughout this letter, there are going to be these, these bursts of doxology where Peter just breaks in. He's giving practical exhortations. And then he bursts forth again in, in doxology, praise to the Lord. And this should be our response as we go through this as well. Well, the real praise begins in verse 3, and it cascades from there. And we'll be picking up most of this next week. But I want to backfill with the first two verses. And and not just to uh, who wrote it, where was it written to, when was it written, not, not that kind of introduction. But let's just see these first two verses, and they also give us reasons to say, what a God we have. And so with that in mind, let, we'll, we'll make four kind of uh, statements just saying, what a great and glorious God we have. First, what a God we have who accomplishes his purposes in and through flawed people. 
What a God we have who accomplishes his purposes in and through flawed people. The letter, the letter starts in typical fashion for that day and time with the author's name. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now most of us, we love Peter because we can identify with Peter. <laughs> he's, he's a normal person like us. He says some pretty dumb things at times, and he's kind of impulsive and uh, I, I, this is not original with me, but I've heard him described as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth uh, because he's, he's, he's always got it in there. And so he's not very polished. He's not pedigreed. You know, you have Paul who says, I'm a, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. <coughs> I graduated with honors from the most, most prestigious uh, you know, school in the land. And then you turn to Peter and says, I know how to fish. <laughs> I, can, I can fix a net. I can tell the difference between a spotted bass and a smallmouth bass. Um, it's, it's, that's, he, he's just normal. And, and so what makes Peter special and, and, and useful is not his amazing intellect. It's not some natural abilities that he has. It's not his personality. The thing that matters about Peter isn't a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so Jesus called him, Jesus chose him, Jesus set him apart, saved him, sent him, even named him. Peter didn't get his name from his mama. His mama named him Simon. He got his name, Peter, from his Savior. And Jesus changed his name. He gave him a name that's not used of anyone else in the New Testament. There's nobody, you know, most of the New Testament names, the other apostles, there are multiple people with that name. Not with Peter. He's the only Peter in Scripture. His name, as many of you know, means rock or stone. And Jesus gave him this name because it illustrated what God wanted to accomplish through his life. And in his life, God would turn Peter into a rock. And he had by this point in his life. But this rock was one that crumbled many times. And we don't have time to go back and recount all the ways, all the times and just that are recorded for us in Scripture of all the times Peter messed up and and failed and said dumb things and did dumb things. But we could just say, say it with this. There was at least one time when he messed up where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So that's not what you want to hear. Um, so, and yet, what a God we have who takes a flawed guy like Peter, average person like Peter, and uses him in mighty ways to advance his cause in the world. That's a, that's a great God. It's not Peter the bench-warming screw-up. It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his grace. That's, that's a great God. Second, what a God we have who does not forget us in the midst of our sufferings. He does not forget us in the midst of our sufferings. So he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to people who are chosen by God. They're elect. These are Christians, but they're alienated. They're scattered throughout that known part of the world. Are, these are Christians who are scattered throughout these five Roman provinces, which were in, uh, <coughs> on the peninsula of Asia Minor, in northern Turkey on, on our maps today. And so you can look in the back of your Bibles if you wanted to see where these places are and these provinces are. But he wrote this letter uh, from Rome, most likely. He spent the last 10 years of his life in Rome. And so he's writing this letter shortly before, um, again, there's some questions about dating, either shortly before or right after the, the 
intense persecution began with Nero. This would be A.D. 64. And so the heat's already being turned up, and it's hard to know exactly with precision what the date was on this, but the heat's being turned up when he's writing, but yet the persecution is, going to, is about to get even more intense, and he makes that clear that it's, it's going to get worse. And so these believers in these provinces, they, they may be people that have lived their whole lives in these places, and when he says that they're, they're scattered and they're exiles, that they, he's simply saying that, that they're in the sense that they're a Christian minority in a very... Uh, hostile pagan land or it could be that these are believers that peter knew in rome who because the persecution was intensifying in rome they've been scattered out into these provinces we don't really know for sure um, not essential to the interpretation of this passage but but you see how he describes them these elect exiles of the dispersion now one of the things we're going to see not just today but as we walk through this letter of first peter is there are all kinds of of references to and quotations from the Old Testament. And so even in this description, it's it's dripping with images of Israel, the elect chosen ones, God's chosen people, Israel, and uh, from all the nations, God chose them. So, But here he's talking about believers in the church. They're the elect ones. They're exiles. They're of the dispersion, diaspora. You might have heard that term. That was used... Uh, for, for Jews who were separated from their homeland and away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, they were referred to as living in the diaspora. And, and so here again, Peter borrows those words and uses it, uses it to describe the situation for these Christians in these churches. They're made up, and the churches are not just Jewish churches. They're made up of Jews and Gentiles. But he says what? You're, they're alienated. They're exiles. They're odd. They don't belong. They're scattered. But what? But they're not forgotten by God. He's going to make that very clear. You know, listen, all Christians, we're, we're all exiles in this world. Uh, we, we, we don't really belong here. We're strangers or sojourners. This is how Scripture talks about us. We're citizens of heaven. That's where, that's where our home is. That's where we belong. And, we're, and yet we're living in the midst of, of a pagan society, that which we were brought forth from. So we stand out. You're different. Have you ever, if you have a passport and you've ever traveled outside of this country, or particularly if you've ever lived in another country like some of you have, um, and especially in a very different culture, maybe a third world country or just a, just a different culture, you're surrounded by people. But again, even if you've traveled in these places, you're surrounded by people who, who aren't like you. <laughs> they, don't, they don't talk like you. They don't think like you. They don't eat like you. They don't dress like you. Uh, they don't live like you. And, and when you're in that context, you, don't, you never forget even for a second that you are the outsider. It's very, you're very aware of your outsider status. Um, and so it is. It's, with that in mind, this, so it is for Christians living in this world. What sets us apart, though, is not necessarily the clothes that we wear. It's not, it's not the language we speak. It's not the food that we eat. That's not it. No, if you take a still shot of the world, and if you could just put everybody in the world on, on, on a, <laughs> in a photograph, uh, if you took a still shot, you might not be able to pick the believers out. But if you put it in motion and you turn the audio up, then the differences really stand out. One of these things is not like the other one, to borrow Sesame Street. Um, 
What, what makes us stand out, though, it's not, that, it's not that we create this Christian subculture where we have all t- our, our, our alternatives to everything that the world has, and so we're weird in that way. That's not it. It's not that we have Christian clothes and Christian movies and Christian food and Christian breath mints. And I mean, I, I've seen that. Uh, I don't understand it, but I've seen it. Um, that's not the stuff that should primarily set us apart. Um, what, what sets us apart, are, it's what we value. It's our attitude. It's our hope in the face of suffering. It's love. It's truth. It's, it's how we forgive. It's how we deal with pain and disappointment. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the authority of God's Word. It's our love for one another. I mean, these are the things. And those are radical, visible differences. They should be. And so, so these early Christians that Peter's writing to, it's not that they're isolated from the world where they're living behind these walled compounds. No, they're, they're, but they're alienated in the world. They're part of the culture, but they're exiles in there. And, so they're, and they're scattered in these many places. We're going to see this. We're going to open this up more as we walk through First Peter together. But they're scattered in these many places, like seeds that have been kind of scattered in the wind. And again, they're alienated, they're scattered, they're not forgotten. They're, they're actually, they're cast out like seeds from the hand of God. And he scattered them out. On, and, and, and it's for his, the sake of his mission. So they may be exiled and dispersed, but they are elect. They are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And look at verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now that's a mouthful. But that is saying so much. Just first, just to surface one of the things that you see, is you see this Trinitarian nature of our relationship with God. The Father, God the Father calls us. He's called us. God the Spirit has set us apart. God the Son has cleansed us. Saved us. And so, so this, this beautiful description, and, and, and so... and. and the, the thrust of it, though, and I know that for some of you, election is, is, a, is a hobby horse and you love to talk about it. For others of you, it's like a rock in your shoe and you just it just yeah, grates on you. Peter isn't trying to start a debate here. That's not his point. He's writing a letter to suffering Christians. And he addresses them in light of this eternal reality. God the Father, Son, Spirit, are working in in a sovereign and gracious way, and have worked. You're his. He knows you. You're his. Peter says to these harassed, and and look what it leads to. It leads not to um, apologies. It leads to doxology, to praise. This is where he's going to go in the next verse. But Peter says to these harassed, persecuted, no doubt discouraged Christians, you're God's elect. He chose you. He put you where you are. He saved you and he put you in Cappadocia for a purpose. He put you in Bithynia for a reason. You're on the front line of what God is doing in this world. You are not forgotten. No. He set his heart on you from all eternity. And he knows what he's doing. He knows where you are. He knows what you need. Same is true for you and me today. However alienated you may feel, however scattered you may be, I don't mean scatterbrained, but if you feel separated and isolated, God has not forgotten you. Not one child of God's is ever MIA. 
You are never off of his radar. The Father has his eye on each one of you and has from all eternity. This is, this is thrust. I know there's, there's tricky languages and how do these phrases connect, but I don't want you to miss the bigger picture. This is what Peter is saying to these Christians. God puts you. God saved you if you're a believer. He saved you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit played a part in your salvation. He saved you and he put you in Jonesboro. He'll put you in Fayetteville. He'll put you in Atlanta or Noonan or wherever you live. And, and whatever problems you're going through, he's not abandoned you. He has, he has you, on, actually he has you on the front line of his mission in this world. It may not feel great and comfortable, but that's, that's where he has you. And he's with you. And again, one of the things that shows us is our salvation. It doesn't start or end with me. <laughs> it's God, God's work in me. Salvation is of the Lord. And so uh, our condition in this world may be quite tenuous. I don't know what you're walking through. We know some of what these believers were walking through. And as bad as they had it, there were probably other believers in the world who had it worse. So the point isn't to compare, okay, well, my hope, my encouragement is that, you know, I don't have it as bad as other people. There, we can always find people who are worse off than us. That's not, there's no comfort, there's really no help in that. No, but when our, if our situation in the world is somewhat tenuous, what we can say with confidence is that our position with God could not be better. It could not be any better. Not because it's up to you, not because of your maintenance, but because God the Father has called you. His Spirit has set you apart. His Son has cleansed you, has, 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 sanct- has, 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 has washed you with the sprinkling of His blood. You're His. And so we will always be strangers in this world, but we will also always be God's elect. What a God we have. And now we get to the real meat of, of this this worship of God in verse 3 and again everything we've set up to this point is kind of backfilling verse 3 is when the letter really begins in earnest and we're just going to scratch the surface and get started in it and we're just going to look through verse 5 today Lord willing if if uh, we have time and if my voice holds out um, so we say what a what a God we have who has authored our salvation that's the next thing in verse 3 What a God we have who has authored our salvation. Look at verse 3 again with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the, the basis for their encouragement in the face of persecution is God's grace towards them in Christ. In the midst of their trials, it's the new birth that's the source of of hope for them. We have three things that we see. We've been born of God. That's the main thrust. If grammatically speaking, that's the, that's the key word, key, key expression in this verse. We've been born of God. He has caused us to be born again. Now, to be born again means that you have the very life of God in your soul. Don't think it's less than that. I, don't, I know you hear that phrase, and it's a phrase you're familiar with. It's, it's not choosing a religion. That's not what it, the new birth is about. It's not adopting a new lifestyle, adhering to some new moral code, or, or being part of a new social network. No, to be a Christian is to have the new birth, which is to have the very life of God in you. Think about that. And as a result, you're a, you're a brand new person. 
Now he's no doubt drawing on, on, on Jesus' words to Nicodemus that we saw many, many, a long time ago now in John 3. When, when Nicodemus is asking Jesus questions and Jesus about being born again, and Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Yeah. And he goes on to verse 15, that whoever believes in Jesus is the one who has eternal life. So it, we, we were born again by faith. Then the very next verse, verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible probably, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so the new birth is necessary to receive eternal life. And this is what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's redundant to talk about being a born-again Christian because there are no other kinds of Christians. Uh, if, you're, if you're not born again, if you don't have God's life in you, then you're not a Christian. I mean, this is, uh, again, with uh, all the remembrances with uh, Billy Graham this week and uh, listened to, to audio of kind of had them playing in the background as I've been studying this week and I can again that that phrase being born again you must be born again was such a the lifeblood of his message uh, in his evangelistic crusades and uh, that's 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 good that's what it needs to be but but look at, again look at this verse he's he's caused us to be born again and here he's writing to believers and he's saying the fact that you you've been born again by God is of is of great help and encouragement and hope to you He's caused us to be born again. The, the syntax of this verb, it, it, it makes God very active in this. It's not just that you have been born again. It's that, that you have been caused to be born again. This is a very strong statement about God's sovereign work on our behalf. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. You didn't cause your spiritual birth any more than you caused your physical birth. And if you want to take that up with your mom and argue that point, I dare you. Um, so... So it, it comes, it, it's got to come from the life-giving power of God. And so it's this truth that, that causes Peter's heart, and it should cause ours, to just burst with praise. <laughs> if your salvation was dependent upon your own performance, or your own merit, or your own sacrifices, your own effort, then it would rest on very shaky ground. But Peter says, it's not based on those things, it's based upon the sovereign will of God. And he's caused you to be born again. Therefore, it's solid. It's secure. However shaky your life may seem right now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Your life may seem to be on very fragile, thin ice, shaky ground. However shaky it seems, you can praise God that because of the deliverance that you have from spiritual death, that it's, that it's from God and not from yourself that you are on firm ground today. However it feels. As, from God's perspective, you are secure. He's caused you to be born again. Second, we have mercy from God. Yeah, as God is the author of our salvation, we've been born again by God. We have mercy from God. Our new birth is according to God's great mercy, to His according to His unearned favor and uh, towards us, to, towards sinners who are in a hopeless condition. And the idea of mercy it inherently carries the idea of pity, compassion. It's, 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 and, and so this is the, the, the way in which we've born, been born again. It's according to his mercy. 
Not just mercy, but great mercy. And God is a God who is great in mercy. If Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals himself to Moses. And what does he say of himself? I, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on. But it's, it's that God. It's that God's great mercy that we've been born again to. Not according to our great worth, not according to, our, to, to what we deserve, to our merit, to our innate goodness. No, in fact, it comes in spite of us. It's according to his mercy. We can't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to predispose God uh, to, to give it. It's just simply the undeserved favor from God. And we've been born again. In fact, we only deserve wrath because of our sin. But he has shown us great mercy. And if our salvation is dependent upon our own goodness, like we said, it's, it's not very secure. What if, what if I do something bad? What if God doesn't grade on a curve after all? Or what if the curve is much higher than I thought it was? That There's the teacher's pet that you know, blows the curve for the class. and So now I'm down here and I thought I was up here. But to think that you can get to heaven by your own goodness is to face death is to face eternity with empty vain hope but we don't have to we can if if we let go of our supposed goodness and realize that we deserve God's wrath and and that we appeal to him for his great mercy then our hope our hope of salvation is as secure as the mercy as God is merciful which that's unchanging so we have mercy from God and then also as God is the author of our salvation, we have living hope through Christ's resurrection. We've been born again according to God's mercy to a living hope. Hope is something that these readers, that these first readers of this letter desperately needed. I know it's something we desperately need as well today, and, and, and we always do. It's not, it's not wishful thinking. It's not like what we're hearing as you're watching the Olympics coverage. I... I really hope to win gold today. Um, that's not it. This is a, this is a hope. Is, it's what you look forward to, just to put it in plain language, it's what you look forward to on the other side of pain. It's, it's, it's what tells you everything's going to be okay in the end. It will be worth it. It will be worth it all. I know, Howard, you've heard you reference that song, When We See Jesus. That's, that's hope. For many people, their hope is, is simply that their circumstances will change. So our hope is, my, one day I'll get the recognition I deserve. They'll see. Or my hope is, one day people will like me, I'll, I'll fit in. One day I'll meet the perfect man or woman and I'll get married. That's, that's hope, my circumstances. But one day I'll finish school, I'll get a good job. Then the day comes and it doesn't look like you're ever going to get what you, you know, hoped for. So you despair. And you give up hope and you may even become bitter. But Peter says, our hope isn't rooted in our circumstances that always change. Our hope is this fixed reality based upon this historical event. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have this, we have this living hope that's as certain and sure as the fact that Christ lives. And so if the tomb is empty, then our hope endures. It's not going anywhere. That's his point. And you, you think about Peter 
and we've been through the Gospel of John recently. Think about what the resurrection of Jesus meant to Peter. And we walked through those first couple chapters of Acts. But, I mean, Peter's darkest hour was when Jesus died. His whole world fell apart. He staked his whole life on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And he left everything to follow him and, and laid it all on the line. But now Jesus has died. And so that Friday and Saturday, as Jesus' body is in the grave, it seems like his world is over. He's in a time of utter despair. But he's so disappointed that he even denies knowing Jesus. And yet then Sunday, and he goes to the tomb. It's empty. And Jesus appears before him. And all of that sadness turns to joy. And, he, and he's filled with hope and, and, and it's triumph. And, and he realizes the whole time God had a plan. He was, he was up to something. The greatest triumph of humanity was the day of Jesus' crucifixion. It seemed like God lost, man won. The devil won. But in the reality, as we see, it's God's greatest triumph. In the end, he used a, this apparent defeat as the key to the whole plan. And so, what Peter's saying to these, these, to these suffering Christians, you've got to see your whole life through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See what God has done. See the great mercy he's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See your situation through that lens. See your suffering through that. See your difficult marriage through that. See, see your, your, the pressures from the culture through that lens. See the opposition through that. See the sneers and the ridicule and the mockery of your former friends through that lens and the slander. See your sickness and your sin. See your conflict. See your relationships. See your future through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. And so he says... He begins this letter. Blessed be God. What a God we have. This God who has authored our salvation. And, and, and that's the consistent teaching throughout Scripture. What God has done. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God, in the great love with which He loved me, made me alive together in Christ. Take those promises, those passages, and personalize them. I didn't raise myself from the dead. God raised me from the dead. Ephesians 2.5. I was blind to God. I was blind to spiritual realities when I was uh, a freshman, sophomore in high school. But then the Father mercifully and sovereignly opened my eyes to see Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He caused me to see this truth and to acknowledge this truth in high school. I was in utter spiritual darkness. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone into my heart and gave me the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My parents, my grandmother, my pastors, Dr. Draper and Scott Brown and my Sunday school teachers and my youth workers, they, they planted the word of God, they sowed the seed and they watered it. But it was God who made the miracle and caused it to grow, to bear fruit in my life. It was God, God used Billy Graham and Louis Zamperini and, and your grandmother, and he used these people, but God is the one who, who caused the, the word to take root and caused Pastor Dow to be born again to a living hope. I was stubborn. I was self-willed. I was rebellious. I was proud. 
going my own way, would never have come to Jesus on my own. But God drew me. For no one comes to the Father. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. I had no faith. I had no desire to depend upon anybody else other than myself. But God, in his great mercy, granted me to believe. And saved me by faith. It was not my own doing. It was the gift of God. And I believed. So I was born, as John eleven three says, not of blood, not, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So Peter writes to these Christians whose lives seem very fragile and, and the future seems very uncertain. And the first thing he does, he says, what a God we have who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We need that. We need, we need to see what they saw, what, what Peter's compelling them to see. We need to see God like that. God did, God, God did it all lest we should ever boast or fail to bless God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's the God we have. Last thing. What a God we have who has promised that a better day is coming. He's promised a better day is coming. When we've been born, we have been born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know now when we take a trip, we used to be, you'd get out the map and see where you're going. I remember doing that in California, trying to figure out our way around Los Angeles. And then it was, you go to your computer and, you know, print out a thing on MapQuest, and then you'd print a map and custom map to see where you're going. Now, all we do is we get in, plug the plug it into the phone or the GPS or something like that, and we that's how we get around. We know where we're headed. So when you look on a GPS, you know two things. You know where you're going, the destination, and you know where you are at the time. Now, one of those locations is a fixed reference point, and one of those is constantly changing on the screen. And so our destination is fixed. Wherever we happen to be at the time anymore, it really doesn't matter because uh, as long as we have the right address and the GPS, we'll, we'll get there, in theory. I've heard stories of them leading people into rivers and stuff like that. But there, there may be detours, there may be traffic accidents, road closures and wrong turns, and, and, but it, what does it do? Recalculating, recalculating. It'll recalculate, it'll adjust your route, keep you moving towards the destination. Well, Peter encourages these saints whose lives are in turmoil. Everything seems to be falling apart and the, the heat of persecution is just being turned up dramatically for them. Increasing hostilities, alienation, conflicts, threats, difficulties. But Wherever they were, whatever they were going through at the time, there's this fixed reality, fixed reference point. It does not change for him. And this is of great encouragement and help to them. There's this destination and something so wonderful and so glorious that's awaiting them. It's inheritance that's awaiting them. And it draws them. We have this inheritance because of the new birth and nothing can touch it. Something so glorious that it makes all the pain worth it. And so, so, so we see this. We, we have this inheritance that waits. Now, I, I, uh, I don't know if Jeremy Wessels is here. I hope not. I'm going to bash on lawyers for a minute. So sorry if you are, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> no, but you, you read legal doc. I hate reading legal documents. I'm sure you do too. Probably he does too. I don't know. 
But they're, they're awful to read. Why it can't just be written in plain English is beyond me. But they, I, I think there's job security when they write it in this cryptic language that nobody else understands. Cause they, they, but, but you read, that's, that's a, it's a boring thing to read through a legal document. And so we tend to just skim it. Like, I know we're not supposed to, but that's what we do. But there is one legal document that I will guarantee you, you will listen to very carefully if it's being read. And that is a will. <laughs> if you know somebody who's named you as an heir of a large inheritance, when you're sitting around that table, you will be listening carefully to that being read. Um, and you will hang on every word. Well, Peter is saying here that our, our, our salvation is this inheritance that it's kept in heaven for us. Of course, Christ himself is our inheritance. But, but it also includes all that he's provided and, and will provide for those that he's purchased with his blood. And so it's so vast and indescribable. We can't fully comprehend it all. And so even as Peter tries to describe it, he just says, uh, it's, it's more than I can describe, but he just talks about what it's not. It's not perishable. It's not defiled. It's not fading. It can't be destroyed by hostile forces. It's not in any way impure. There are no impurities in it. It's perfect. It's, it's not going to spoil like overripened fruit. It, it's free from the ravages of time. It's not going to be sun bleached like the towel you left hanging outside or something like that. No, the, the, this inheritance is, is, is it's enduring. And, and it's, it's indestructible, as we'll see in verse 23, as the very word of God. So we have this inheritance, and, and not only that, that inheritance isn't, un, is, isn't going anywhere, and it's not can't be touched, but we ourselves will be protected until we claim it. And so you see this, in, in, that we are protected or shielded. It's a military term uh, it, it used to refer to a garrison within a city, and so just it implies that we're under attack. And yet we're, we're, we're surrounded by this garrison of troops that will carry us and we'll have safe passage till we claim that inheritance. And it's not just the, the, this, this protection of an earthly army which might, you know, may or may not win. No, it's, it's the very power of God himself that protects us and will protect us to the end, that guards our salvation until that time when our salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. There's, we, we, only, we only enjoy a small part of all that God has prepared for us. It's like a statue that's still you know, draped and ready to be, ready to be revealed. This is, there's our salvation. We know some, and we can get some sense of the dimensions and, and, and what it is, but it's going to be greater than we can possibly imagine. That's waiting for us. And it's ready, it's prepared. There's one other place Peter uses this word ready in this letter. It's in chapter 4, verse 5, where he warns that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's interesting. So for the believers, there's this, there's this salvation that's ready for, for everyone else. There's judgment that's ready. The future holds one or the other for every single person. Either you will wait to see the veil lifted on your salvation, or you will wait to see the veil lifted on judgment. Both are ready. Both are prepared. What determines your future is seen in the very in the phrase there, verse five, through faith. Faith. That's the difference. We all have faith. We have plenty of faith. The problem is that our object of faith is oftentimes not Jesus Christ alone, and what He did on the cross. So, if your faith is not in Him, if it's if you place it in yourself or in some other God of your own making, then 
And there's, there's no hope of having that, un, that inheritance. The, the object of our faith is a difference, and so we've got to make sure it's in Christ alone. But what I want you to, again, what the encouragement for us is what I want you to see is what a God, what a God we have who's, who's promised a better day that's coming. Um, we will leave the city of destruction and we have, we have life that awaits us. We will cross the bridge and it will be glorious. And we don't get to see it all now, but it's coming. It's veiled, but we, it, it's a sure thing and we're kept by the power of God until that day. Well, before we sing, I, I, I think the, 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 uh, as Paul concludes verse 2, and he's, he's just addressing this letter to, the, to these people, this is, again, one of the, another way I've been praying for us as we begin this letter of 1 Peter. As, Paul, or as Peter uses these words, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I, I hope that that's the case as we walk through this letter to get together. Um, that God's grace... And his peace would abound in us. Whatever you're walking through, uh, grace and peace are not stagnant. It's not that we just we just have it or you don't. It, it grows in us. And God continues to give it and continues to shower it. And it's infinite. And, and as Peter prays, I pray for you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, who according to God's mercy... He's caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's waiting for you. Let's pray. Father, would you, for each one of us, God, uh, just give us uh, the, the vision that we need of yourself. We, we see our circumstances. We see the difficulties. We see, um, we see the, the hardships and the pain and the sorrows, but we need to see you. We need to see all of those difficult, not to ignore those things, but to see them through the lens of the cross and the resurrection and against the backdrop of your greatness. And so I pray that you would help each one of us to, 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 to have a better view of that even this week, whatever, whatever we're walking through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.